Welcome to 2050 Investors, the podcast that deciphers economic and market megatrends to meet tomorrow's challenges. I'm Kokua Boubla. I head up economics, cross-asset, and quant research at Société Générale. In each episode of 2050 Investors, I'll investigate a key megatrend that relates to the economy, the planet, markets, and you. Imagine your taste buds could hear. Eating your favorite meal will have the same sensory stimulation as listening to classical music. A filet mignon or a Japanese wagyu beef entrecote with a nice glass of red wine, say a Cabernet Sauvignon, for instance, would be like listening to Einer Kleiner Nachtmusik by Mozart, an explosion of the senses. For those of you who are addicted to chocolate, like me, a chocolat fondant reminds me of the Bolero by Ravel. Fireworks in slow motion for your taste buds. Going a step further, a seven-course meal at L'Atelier de Joël Robuchon, the most awarded Michelin star chef in the world, would be the equivalent of attending an orchestra playing Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. After all, and to quote Australian author Gregory David Roberts, food is music to the body, music is food to the heart. Most of the time, however, we don't need fancy restaurants. We all have a favorite meal our mom used to cook that will trigger the same emotional experience and fond memories. As renowned American film director Martin Scorsese once asked, If your mother cooks Italian food, why should you go to a restaurant? We've had an intimate and complex relationship with food throughout history, across civilizations, cultures, traditions and religions. Good table manners, and etiquette. What can or cannot be eaten, where, when, and in what order. Good food triggers a lot of endorphins in our brains. Feel-good hormones entice us to look for the nutrients our cells, brain, and other organs need to survive. Sugar or carbohydrates, for example, are converted into energy by our mitochondria in the same way as gasoline powers a car engine. In the words of Malcolm Forbes, editor-in-chief of Forbes magazine, food may be essential as fuel for the body, but good food is fuel for the soul. Without food, humans will starve. Too much of it, and we get sick and develop serious health issues. Obesity, high cholesterol, and diabetes, to name a few. According to actionagainsthunger.org, 811 million still go hungry today. That's one person out of 10 on the planet. At the same time, data from worldpopulationreview.com shows that the number of obese people in the world has tripled since 1975 to approximately 2.1 billion, or a staggering 30% of the global population. In 2021, the global food market generated around $8.3 trillion in revenues, close to 10% of the world's GDP. However, the food industry also has a significant dark side. It is not only its fat carbon footprint, and yes, carbon footprints can be fat, but also food waste and chemical pollution. 
think fertilizers and pesticides, and their significant impact on biodiversity and the environment. The global food system produces 17.3 billion metric tons of CO2 equivalent every year, or 27% of global emissions, according to Alliance for Science.cornell.edu. This is huge. Climate change is already having catastrophic effects on crop output and agriculture. Heat waves and droughts are more frequent. In some areas, water supply is failing. Furthermore, and as discussed in the War and Peace episode, the war in Ukraine has triggered an unprecedented energy supply shock and especially a massive increase in food prices that will cause severe hardships for consumers globally, particularly in developing countries. This war clearly showed how the relentless pursuit of efficiency and economies of scale in our global food supply chain was achieved at the expense of resiliency. It is extremely vulnerable to shocks. The current food system is unfortunately not sustainable because it is itself contributing to a lethal negative feedback loop for the climate. Intensive farming, higher carbon emissions, rising temperatures, lower crop output, rising demand, intensive farming, and the loop continues. Here are some key questions worth pondering. How do we feed a world population expected to grow from 7.7 billion today to 9.7 billion in less than 30 years while committing to net zero greenhouse gas emissions? Is it possible to envisage a transition toward a more sustainable food industry? What solutions are being put on the table, pun intended, by the food industry? Is the future of food high energy pills and liquids full of nutrients injected intravenously like in Star Trek? Let's start our investigation. Let's first do a quick research on the history of food before addressing its future, shall we? 6.25 a.m. It's my alarm. Time to wake up and go to my daily squash game. I have a league match today with good hopes of winning the trophy this time. Not like my sour defeat in our first episode. But wait, I'm starving. I must have been dream podcasting about food again and fallen asleep in the middle of researching this episode on the future of food. Time to eat. My normal routine is to brush my teeth, eat breakfast, play squash or do a 5k run in the park when it is not raining, then shower and dress up for work. Why is breakfast the most important meal of the day? According to BetterHealth.com, breakfast literally means to break the overnight fasting period. That period is about 12 hours since your last meal, i.e. dinner. It is pretty much half of a full day. Can you imagine not eating anything from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. every day? Breakfast is important because it replenishes your supply of glucose to boost your energy levels and alertness, while also providing other essential nutrients required for good health. Regular breakfast eaters tend to have lower rates of heart disease, high blood pressure, and high cholesterol. But what do most people have for breakfast? For me, either at the office or at home, breakfast will include a combination of eggs, bacon, bread, cereals, tomatoes, pain au chocolat, orange or apple juice, milk, porridge, Earl Grey tea, of course, hot chocolate or coffee. It's 
spoiler alert and breaking news. Did you know that some food items are very likely to go extinct because of climate change? Sorry to bring this up so early in this episode, but it is my fiduciary duty to remind my fellow listeners that we can't have our cake and eat it too. An article from independent.co.uk highlights eight foods going extinct due to climate change. Are you ready? Ahem. The first on the list is coffee. And yes, coffee is one of the highest consumed beverages in the world, and it might not make it. Second, chocolate. Yep, an important comfort food for many. Third, honey. And the list goes on to avocados, way too water intensive, wine, yup, big issue for France, seafood, strawberries and bananas. So the bottom line is that breakfast in a few decades will look very different. Toasted insects with algae butter, anyone? I think my taste buds are in shock and might suffer from irreparable PTSD, poor taste stress disorder. Beyond breakfast and our other daily food pit stops, we also have many special occasions where we treat ourselves with food overdose with always a good excuse. Thanksgiving, birthday parties, weddings, Easter, New Year celebration, Christmas, Hanukkah, barbecues, or the countless celebrations where we eat and drink a lot more than what our stomachs can handle. Eating is clearly an excuse to bring people together. It is a cultural, religious, and social celebration. Julia Child, the famous American cooking teacher and television personality, could not have put it better when she said, and I quote, A party without cake is just a meeting. This leads me to ask the famous question, do we live to eat or eat to live? Well, it depends on where you live. Here's a fun fact about living to eat. An article from Statista.com has a chart that shows where people spend the most time eating and drinking. And the winner is... France, with 2 hours and 13 minutes spent on mastication. Closely followed by Italy, with 2 hours and 7 minutes. Spain is very close behind, with 2 hours and 6 minutes. South Korea and China are at 1 hour and 45 minutes. At the bottom of the list is the USA, with one hour and two minutes. No wonder that fast food is an American invention. The UK is at one hour and 19 minutes. I will refrain from making any hasty conclusions on this very sensitive subject matter, given the nationality of many of my devout listeners. Suffice it to say that one cannot not observe a correlation between the quality of food in some countries and the time spent eating and socializing around food. But yet again, correlation is not causation. Okay, let me clarify one thing before we go any further. For those in doubt, this is not a podcast about a numerical diet. You can snack all you want, but you know the adage, tell me what you eat and I'll tell you who you are. With food being so critical to our existence, it is not a surprise that our ancestors took food matters very seriously. Food security was a matter of survival for our species. Even the Greek gods had nectar and ambrosia to sustain their immortality. Browsing the metaverse, I found this article on nationalgeographic.org titled The Development of Agriculture 
It shows that agricultural communities developed approximately 12,000 years ago when humans began to domesticate plants and animals. Families and larger groups were able to build permanent communities and transition from a nomadic hunter-gatherer lifestyle that was dependent on foraging and hunting. Another interesting article titled The Domestication Origins shows that the domestication process began when people chose wild plants that would be useful for eating or making clothing, harvested their seeds and deliberately planted them. Similarly, animals were chosen for their human-valued products, like fur, meat and milk, or their abilities to help humans with their labors. The animals were bred selectively with other members of their species to ensure that offspring will possess only the most useful traits for human. Domestication represents a species-wide genetic change from wild animals rather than just the taming of individual animals. So, when it comes to what we eat, meat, fruit or vegetables, it is really a process of evolution by human selection and design. Now, let's address the question of this fat carbon footprint for the food industry. A chart available on our worldindata.org entitled Environment Impact of Food Production looks at the carbon footprint of the supply chain for one kilogram of each food category as of June 2021. Here it goes. One kilogram of beef generates close to 100 kilograms of CO2 equivalent. That's like driving a car for 400 kilometers. Dark chocolate, 46.65 kilogram of CO2 equivalent. There goes my chocolat fondant. Lamb, 39.7 kilograms. Coffee, 28.5. Poultry, 10. Rice, 4.5. Tomatoes, 2. Fruit, 1. And at the bottom of the list, 1 kilogram of vegetables produces only 0.5 kilogram of CO2 equivalent. We should therefore listen to our parents when they say, eat your greens. This is also the green thing to do for the planet. Joke aside, food is important for humans, but our current food system is not sustainable for the planet. Let's discuss food sustainability and solutions to feed close to 10 billion people by 2050. Have you heard of Hampton Creek? It's a food technology company that was selected by Bill Gates as one of the three companies shaping the future of food alongside Beyond Meat. Anyhow, its CEO, Josh Tetrick, makes the following points in a TED Talk. We need absolute and complete reinvention. We should no longer use animals for protein. Only 25% of the weight of a chicken is consumable meat, for example. Plant-based alternatives to replicate meat is the future. It is a more efficient source of nutrients and a lot less land-intensive. Another TED Talk called Can We Create a Perfect Farm? provides some additional insights. It argues for the need for a second agricultural revolution. The first revolution was at the expense of the planet, forest and wildlife. It destabilized the climate. For agriculture to work, we need a stable climate, predictable seasons and weather patterns. But we are destroying the very conditions that make agriculture possible in the first place. We therefore need a second revolution 
that needs to increase output while protecting the environment, water, biodiversity, and reducing greenhouse gas emissions. The solution is to mix crop and livestock as nature intended instead of growing them separately. In addition, there is a place for technology, like robots to distribute fertilizers efficiently, as opposed to showering them and polluting the environment. Sensors to monitor water use. It will be smart farming, like the concept of smart cities. In a nutshell, we need to produce food to work with the environment and not against it. Now, the last question. What is the future of food in 2050? Imagine you are this nice-looking strawberry cake or a sophisticated meal prepared with precision and patience with every little detail seen to. You are about to embark on one of the scariest journeys of destruction by the time you are consumed, aka digestion. It's like going through hell and crossing the river Styx in Greek mythology. First, you are crushed by 32 teeth and mixed with saliva that is breaking down your carbohydrates. Then, you are shoved down by the tongue into the throat and down into the esophagus which leads straight into the stomach. A bowl of gastric acids such as hydrochloric acid. There, you are turned into a sort of soup. Now, you have to go through the 6 meter long small intestines where you will be taken apart and absorbed. When all is said and done, this 40-hour-long process ends with a unceremonious exit of whatever is left. Can we bypass digestion? The umbilical cord of a fetus provides for all the needed nutrients, same principle as being fed nutrients intravenously when you are in a coma. Can we produce food and have a personalized high-density cocktail of all the nutrients we need directly injected in our bloodstreams? These are the solutions of sci-fi movies like The Matrix or Star Trek. We might not need to go that far. There is some hope. An article from anthropocenemagazine.org shows that while meat consumption is growing globally, in some countries the appetite for meat is in decline. A group of researchers argues that New Zealand, Canada and Switzerland have in fact reached peak meat. meat a point beyond which increasing income no longer tracks with increasing consumption of beef, chicken, mutton, and pork. Above $40,000 GDP per capita, several countries seem to be making a voluntary shift away from meat. This might not be enough for net zero, though. A final word about wine. After all, in vino veritas. In wine, there is truth. An article on the future of wine, published on Colombia's Climate School website and co-authored by researcher Benjamin Cook, describes wine grapes as the canary in the coal mine for climate change. This is because of their extreme climate sensitivity. A 2 degree Celsius temperature increase will shrink regions where wine grapes can be grown by 56%. A 4 degree increase will threaten 85% of that land. So. Chardonnay, Merlot, Pinot Noir, and Cabernet Sauvignon are all potentially at risk. A daunting prospect for sure. The article smartly concludes that if the prospect of rising wine prices doesn't unite humanity against climate change, nothing will. The final question is now about companies. 
How are food companies contributing to the fight against climate change? To discuss this theme further, let's have a quick chat with David Hayes, Société Générale's in-house analyst covering food companies. Hello, David. Hey, Coco. How are you? Yeah, very good. Thanks for taking the time to um, talk to us about food in this podcast. Um, I have a couple of questions. Let's kick off with the first one. What initiatives are food companies taking to develop a more sustainable food supply chain, in your opinion? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of work going on with the with the companies in in this area. Partly because um, they're looking to to do improve their metrics from an ESG perspective, uh, and partly because the consumers are demanding it. Just to put that into context, fifty percent of of consumers now are actively consider sustainability of the the brands that they're buying. Um, if I put the uh, initiatives into four broad buckets, that the first one would be regenerative agriculture. So um, a lot of the food companies are working in partnership with their farmers, their suppliers, uh, to ensure that you know, grazing techniques, um, crop farming is being done um, at a, in the most efficient way in terms of sustainability. An example of that is what they call no-till agriculture. So they're working to basically um, not disturb the ground as much as we've done in the past, which keeps the carbon and the water in the ground. And that's an important element because... Um, 25% of all um, greenhouse gas emissions come from agricultural process. Uh, the, the second one is changing what they're selling and what people, uh, consumers are buying. Um, so the, the obvious one there is moving more to plant-based alternatives, whether it be meat or dairy. To put some context on the importance of that, uh, again, from a sustainability standpoint, um, burgers that are vegetable-based, like made by companies like Beyond Meat, or Nestle has a, a branded garden gourmet sensational burger, those vegetable burgers are about 80% less uh, GHG or CO2 emissions relative to the, the meat equivalent. So that's something that they're trying to encourage people to move across to. The third one would be less waste. So if about 30% of all food actually is wasted as it goes through the whole process. We, we heard a company that we covered talk this week um, about their uh, efforts to halve their food waste by 2025. And the examples of that would be, you know, if you look at um, coffee production, um, you can see examples where they're taking the ground coffee uh, remnants from making instant coffee. And then rather than that's being thrown away, they're using that as biofuel to then power most of the plant. Um, so therefore, you know, it's still uh, recycling uh, within the process. And the last one is what the food comes in. So trying to move as quickly as possible to reusable and recyclable packaging. And you've seen companies, again, you know, putting um, timeframes of five to 10 years to move to fully renewable packaging made with renewable energy so that that's all being addressed as part of the, the process as well. Uh, and this all costs money, um, but, you're, but companies are increasingly explicit about that investment. So one of the companies we look at, you know, is talking about somewhere between four to five percent of sales of additional gross cost to do all of those things that we just talked about. Um, there are offsets to that in terms of then more efficiencies that can also come from it. Um, but, you know, it's an expensive exercise and their spending is going up to to make this happen over the next five years or so. Yeah, thanks for this. This is quite um, telling because uh, it is true that, as we discussed earlier in this podcast, one kilogram of beef is uh, has the same carbon footprint as a, uh, a car being driven for 400 kilometers or 100 kilogram of CO2 equivalent so it's pretty significant 
But the real question is how consumer adapt. Do you think one can transition consumer taste buds, our taste buds, to enjoy food that is more sustainable and less carbon intensive to produce? Yeah, no, I think I think you can. I think you're seeing it. I mean, again, the, the starting point which helps is that you're coming to it in terms of a you know, as an industry, you're coming to it. Um, or you're, you're taking this to a receptive audience, increasingly receptive audience, to try and think about, I mentioned earlier, 50% of consumers are aware of the sustainability element. Um, you know, give you some more stats. Um, similar, same presentation of Unilever this week, actually. You know, 73% of people in their survey they talked to are looking to eat healthier. Um, 40% are looking to eat more vegetables. 25% are looking to reduce meat and salt take. So this is, this is sourced by the FMCG guru survey so um so you've kind of got an audience that that wants to improve their own health and improve the health of the planet so that is a good starting point um i I think as you say the problem is that we all become very ingrained uh and 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 kind of programmed to, to what we are used to eating if you get people used to something different they will over time becomes a new habit what I think we've seen examples of this, of when it kind of works, is that you do it very gradually. So the slightly odd analogy almost is to think of it like you know, your dog or your cat and you change its food. They always say, you know, change a little bit every day or else it will just reject it up front. And then after you know, two weeks of moving across to the new, new food, it doesn't even notice effectively and carries on. So, so you've seen examples of that where you know, brands have taken, you know, 18 months, two years to change, lower the salt content, lower the sugar content. Um, and then the consumer you know, doesn't see it. If he looks at the ingredients, it's, it'd be able to see the, the delta. But, but he doesn't actually see it as he uses the product because gradually it shifts across. What, what we've seen, that the bad examples of that is where you just change it overnight and then the consumer rejects it because it's obviously a, you know, a shock to the system. But the other thing that we find, which I guess is a difficult one in terms of complete disclosure, is you don't tell the consumer that they're, you're shifting the product ingredients and that you're shifting you know, the taste profile. Uh, you know, the, the, perhaps the most famous example of that is in you know, going back to sort of mid-1980s, 85, I think it was, Coca-Cola changed the recipe of Coca-Cola, which was a big move to make. Complete disaster, but they also made it a very public shift and therefore the consumer was looking for it. So similarly, you know, they kind of look, come in and learn from that. So Kraft recently changed its mac and cheese format and what they did to changed the taste but it was making it more sustainable more healthy they, they dropped using food dyes and replaced it with paprika and turmeric uh, etc um, and then they didn't tell the consumer and then six months later having made this shift they then put it on the packaging and said you know this is a different product than you bought six months ago by which time people kept buying it and they were they were moved with it so so mm. it's I, I think you've got this you've got this very it's interesting dilemma of people want to shift they're scared of the change almost. Um, but if you do it gradually enough, and if you almost don't make it an obvious shift because you're not telling people, then uh, then you can um, you know you can make that development. Yeah, change. I mean, I, I think that definitely makes sense uh, if you had plenty of time. It's a bit like uh, getting your kids to eat their greens, uh, and it's ultimately good for their health. But it is something that can take time. Um, and, and the problem here is that we need to reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions by 50%. That's roughly 25 billion tons of CO2 equivalent over the next seven years. Uh, and as you said, the food industry uh, has a carbon footprint that's uh, 25% of total greenhouse gas emissions. So these 
gradual change, unfortunately, might not be something that we have the luxury of. And this leads me to sort of the, the final question is, if you take that into consideration, what do you think the food industry would look like in 2050, where the world population is expected to grow from 7.7 billion today to close to 10 billion people on Earth? So that's an additional 2 billion mouth to feed. Yeah, no, there's a, there's a lot of changes and stresses on the system to to uh, to accommodate, and as you say, the pressures on to to make these shifts as quickly as possible. I mean, I think you know we kind of touched on it then in terms of some of the healthier changes for both the consumer and the and the planet. So I think there will be a lot more plant based foods. Dan on with plant based milks, Nestle with their uh, with their vegetable burgers, Unilever similarly has a veggie burger uh, and so forth. So, so I think that you know that there's commitment in terms of the company's sales growth to those areas, and I think the consumer, um, you know, will get better and better products. It's, it's interesting you know, to put context on that, maybe in some ways. So these companies are you know are, because it's commercial still, but because they also see this need to to make these changes to get, make their own commitments to net zero and and, and so forth. You know the, the ESG metrics. You're seeing that happening, so I think that that will become more available, and and the demand will go up, and and younger people will be used to it as they as they develop. To your point earlier, I mean, I think other things that change will be much more personalised nutrition. So, and again, this then becomes easier to kind of get people comfortable in terms of taste profile changes. It's weird, pet food actually is more personalised than human food currently. You know, I can go to a company like Tails.com. And say my dog is this breed, and it's got you know this allergy, and it's this age, and so forth. Um, and they will tailor that product and put his name on the product, uh, and that's you know he then eat that product because it's it's formulated to some of his own specific requirements and issues. I think you'll see more of that happening in, in human food. And then I guess just to your to your point, as long as the texture and the taste is acceptable, you're going to be more willing to you know to then eat the product because actually, you know, it's something that you very specifically are going to get benefit from. So I think there'll be more of that. I guess the next level of that, which is perhaps a little bit more neutral, but but you're seeing growth in this area today and will continue, we think at a global level, is, is adult nutrition products. So, um, you know, supplements, vitamins and, and uh, uh, proteins and, and so forth in different formats. A lot of that might be dry, uh, easier to transport, you know, take the, the water part out of it, uh, effectively control the water element to it. So, so I think people will supplement their kind of general snacking with those kind of supplements. And then I guess some of the other things that we, you know, we're thinking about that changes over time, over that period of time of 30 years, uh, more local foods would be something we think we see more of. You start to get into you know, thinking about global political situations, but you know, increasingly maybe people are having gone through a wave of global uh, globalization and uh, production and transportation of food products around the world maybe people think they want to be more you know self-reliant and then obviously again you're reducing perishability is a risk because you're trying to take out some of the preservatives that we've used over the years that obviously aren't good for health or you know potentially the planet then you obviously need to ship um, food over a less distance than maybe we kind of got used to over the previous 10 to 20 years so so i think there's some of the things that you know we'll we'll see are evolving at the moment but then you know 30 years on they will all be very ubiquitous. We kind of be very used to that being the food industry sector. So in, in this podcast, we uh, investigated some of the the the, uh, the food that might go ex- extinct, and um, coffee, chocolate, 
bananas, for example, might go extinct given the current uh, climate change. So I have to ask you, what do you have for breakfast? And are you willing to consider toasted insect and uh, algae uh, butter, for example? <laughs> yes. I saw this the other day that the World Health Organization said that insects is the is the future. I didn't mention that in my 2050 view, but uh, probably perhaps I'm in denial that that's where we have to get to. But but certainly I know that is a, certainly a formal view that that's where the, it's going to solve some of that um, issue of 7 billion going to, to 10 billion. Um, at the moment, I'm afraid I'm quite a traditionalist. I'm, I'm scrambled eggs uh, on, on, on brown toast, though I might add, you know, relatively healthy, probably relative to five years ago. Um, but but I'm sure, you know, as I would need to, um, and as I'm probably told that as I get older, that's probably not the best diet for me every morning, then I will uh, you know, look to adapt and and be more adventurous, I guess. So, uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm looking to be more flexible and do my part for my own health and the health of the planet over the next uh, few years. All right. Thanks, David. This was very insightful. I think it's a wrap. Let's have uh, some food at Beyond Meat sometime. Yep, sounds good. I'll see you in the restaurant and uh, we'll get a couple of veggie burgers together and uh, we know we're doing the right thing both for us and the planet. Brilliant. Take care. Cheers. To conclude and wrap up, I want to share two inspiring quotes that I came across during my research. The first is by American author Jonathan Safran Foer, who has written a few activist novels promoting more conscientious food choices. His quote, Food is not rational. Food is culture, habit, craving, identity, is quite spot on. The future of food will definitely involve changing our culture, habits and cravings. And to dispel any notion that I'm ready for nutrient cocktail fluids, Star Trek style, I'll share some choice words by Mary Catherine Batterson, an American writer and cultural anthropologist. Human beings do not eat nutrients, they eat food. Bring on the toasted insects and algae butter, I say. Thank you for listening to this episode of 2050 Investors. Thanks to David Hayes for his insights. I hope this episode has helped you get a better glimpse of the future of food and what your breakfast will look like in 2050. You can find the show on your regular streaming apps. Please subscribe, leave comments and stars anywhere you like and spread the word. See you at the next episode. While the following podcast discusses the financial markets, it does not recommend any particular investment decision. If you are unsure of the merits of any investment decision, please seek professional advice.